MSW Media. Last week, the fight to derail congressional investigations reached a new fever pitch as former White House counsel Don McGahn refused to produce documents to Congress and then Trump asserted executive privilege over the entire Mueller report. Trump has also sought to block the testimony of McGahn and has urged McGahn to publicly state that Trump did not obstruct justice. Trump has also refused to produce documents in response to routine oversight by the House of Representatives. Can Trump block Don McGahn from testifying? And can his administration use executive privilege to keep documents from the House of Representatives? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And usually I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she is off this week, so I'm going to be bringing in our guest, who's going to help us understand, as a former White House counsel, what Don McGahn is facing, as well as using his campaign finance expertise to help us understand the potential liability that Donald Trump Jr. had that was passed on by Robert Mueller. So I'm going to bring back to the podcast Bob Bauer, who was the White House counsel for President Obama. He also, uh, before serving as White House counsel, he also uh, was the uh, general counsel of President Obama's campaign. And he's a very experienced lawyer, very uh, co- a very accomplished lawyer in the area, particularly of campaign finance. Uh, and he's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times before. So welcome back, Bob. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. So, you know, one of the, when you were on previously, we talked about how you had never been uh, in a situation where you had to hire a lawyer or under investigation. Obviously, Don McGahn uh, had a very different situation in his tenure as is as White House counsel. Uh, and I, one thing I'm just curious about in reading the Mueller report mm-hmm. and reading everything that Don McGahn had to go through, I'm curious what your perspective is as someone who had that job previously. It's hard for me to see that McGahn made any major missteps in judging the difference between sort of the role of the White House counsel to a president and the role of the president's personal attorneys. It seems from press reports that he tried to educate Donald Trump in the fact that he was not his personal lawyer, that he was an institutional lawyer, that in fact he's a lawyer for the United States government. And so he seems to have somehow managed over the extended period of time that he was White House counsel, he was the White House counsel for fully two years, to work around the major difficulties that Donald Trump's misunderstanding of the role apparently presented for him. That did not make for a very lovely relationship. I believe it's in the Mueller report that uh, the president says he doesn't trust the SOB or something to that effect. And most recently, he tweeted out that he would have been happy to fire him again, that McGahn wasn't one of his favorites. I think he was more ready to fire him again, he said, than to fire somebody else. I can't even recall who else he would have been less inclined to fire. But his basic point was he was quite inclined to fire McGahn, but he never did. And it seems to me that that tension reflects some judgments on McGahn's part not to play ball, if you will, or not to cater to the president's misapprehension of the role. So that's my fundamental first thought on the subject, that there's real evidence here that McGahn drew the necessary distinctions here. Now, that isn't to say that one can't wonder why McGahn stayed as long as he did, in particular in the Mueller report, where McGahn was uh, asked by the president to fabricate a piece of evidence. Uh, That is to say, in the controversy over whether, in fact, he had the president asked him to fire Bob Mueller. Uh, McGahn refused to deny that the president had done so, but the president was furious and he wanted McGahn to create some contemporary evidence uh, to support the president's uh, unsupportable version. 
And so the question is, how do you stay as White House counsel in circumstances where you're dealing with a president so impulsive, so disrespectful of the role of the White House counsel, so insensitive fundamentally to the broader institutional questions uh, that were raised in this context, and yet somehow, again, made it through two years and obviously attended to the issues he really cared about, which appeared to lie in the realm of judicial nominations. You know, it's in, it's really interesting. It was really interesting to me uh, to hear you talk about how you, you mentioned that McGahn educated uh, Trump regarding the role of the White House counsel. I'm, I understand that the White House counsel represents the office of the presidency. I think it's pretty as opposed to representing Trump personally. It's clear, I think, from the Mueller report that Trump never really understood that. Uh, but I, it would be helpful, I think, for our listeners to to help us all understand the distinction between those two things. Between the White House counsel's role as counsel of the president, as distinguished from, for example, a private counsel's role at, like, for example, say, Rudy Giuliani as a personal lawyer to the president? Exactly. And what that means is a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Well, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, it means you represent the president in his official capacity as president. You're, as I said earlier, a government lawyer. You're not a private lawyer. You're paid by the taxpayer. And so you are attending to the institutional interests of the presidency. You're obviously representing that particular president. And there's nothing wrong, of course, with recognizing that that flesh and blood individual that you're representing as president of the United States supports particular policies and runs the White House in a particular way and wants a White House counsel to help that president achieve his or her particular goals. That's all fine. But there is a fundamental difference, as I said earlier, between Don McGahn as a government lawyer and, say, Rudy Giuliani or Jay Sekulow as the president's private lawyers. And I think John McGahn, uh, when I said educated or you said he educated, he tried to educate the president in that a distinction does not seem to have been particularly successful. So I think that's a critical point. Right. I agree. And I I think that one thing that I think is also important is that under existing case law, at least in the D.C. Circuit, the Court of Appeals over the District of Columbia, uh, the the federal court, there is no attorney client privilege. Uh, between the president and the White House counsel when there is a gr- when they're compelled to testify before a grand jury. That's correct. That's, a, that's correct. That issue was litigated during the Clinton administration in connection with various controversies over the actions of the administration, various claims that were pushed uh, by the Republicans, say, in the Whitewater uh, controversy. The long and short of it is that, correct, uh, it is not possible for the White House counsel uh, to claim the attorney-client privilege on a matter that relates to the personal representation of the president, the president's personal legal interests. And as a matter of fact, as I recall, I think the administration fought that point and lost in two different circuits. It's very clear that if John McGahn had been asked to give testimony uh, in a criminal proceeding involving the president or involving any other government official, he would be obligated to give the best evidence as a government official. I might add, by the way, and this is relevant to other problems that a White House counsel might observe in a particular administration, the White House counsel, and this is very tricky, but the White House counsel is also fundamentally obligated to bring to the attention of the Department of Justice in some fashion uh, the commission of crimes if he observes that they're taking place. Now, Based on press reports, we don't believe uh, – there are press reports that suggest through McGahn's counsel that he would not take the position that he was ever exposed to an actual commission of obstruction of justice by the president. But let's take it out of the current case and assume that the White House counsel was aware that the president had committed obstruction of justice, had observed an act that he believed to be on the best evidence available uh, to him or her a clear-cut criminal act. He cannot, as a private attorney might, uh, simply hold that in confidence, protecting it under some understanding of attorney-client privilege. He or she would have an obligation to actually report that crime, actually do something to address the commission of that crime. And now that I'm not aware has ever happened, that a White House counsel has gone to report the crime committed by the president that he or she (laughs) serves. But on the other hand, that again underscores the point that the White House counsel is a government lawyer and has obligations to the public, and it doesn't run on some understanding of personal loyalty to the president 
uh, or under some ethical uh, requirement of uh, loyalty to the president in the way that a private lawyer does. Yeah, it's interesting because it appears that McGahn tried to, I think, you know, we talk, we use the term, or I use the term, educate uh, Trump regarding that role. You would think that if he made it clear to Trump that there's no privilege, um, that Trump will be very careful about what he said to McGahn. Obviously, he was anything but putting McGahn in some very difficult positions. I will say McGahn, to his credit at times, refused to do things that would have at the very least been unethical, almost certainly at times, you know, illegal. Um, but he is now in a situation where he, you know, had provided a great deal of uh, information to Mueller's team that I think could then potentially be used against Trump in a subsequent proceeding, whether it's an impeachment proceeding or um, in a court of law after Trump is, is out of office. And certainly Democrats at this point appear to believe that Don McGahn um, is a, a a very important witness for their own obstruction of justice investigation. But we saw this past week uh, that, that McGahn um, did not comply with their subpoena for documents, and it's unclear uh, whether McGahn will come and testify. So mm -hmm. maybe we can start by talking about because one question from our listeners has been how how could um you know how could McGahn be blocked from testifying as a former employee i had two different listeners ask about that can you explain if there's any if what what way if any the white house could block that the president and his team uh, can certainly ask or even seek to direct trump uh, McGahn as a former official uh, not to comply with a congressional request or subpoena for testimony. But there's a practical matter. There's a practical matter. There's not anything they really can do about it. In theory, I suppose, uh, they could seek judicial relief uh, against McGahn's decision to testify. That's not going to happen for a variety of reasons. McGahn is a former official. They can't direct him in the way, by the way, the president might have directed him not to cooperate with Mueller, but he didn't. Uh, he mm -hmm. uh, assented uh, to McGahn's interview with Mueller. But in the congressional setting as a former official, he doesn't have that kind of control. And so fundamentally, the decision about uh, what McGahn is to do here, caught between the president's wish that he not testify, in fact, his, his strong urging that McGahn not testify, and Congress's pursuit of the information, that decision really is gone McGahn's to make. Now, he'll balance a number of considerations. He was formerly a government lawyer. He had ethical obligations. He's going to want to respect those ethical obligations. He's going to want, for institutional reasons, having been a White House counsel, uh, to take into consideration legitimate claims of privilege. But at the same time, he's also not going to risk uh, not complying with a congressional subpoena. And in the typical case, if there are executive privilege claims that he is prepared to honor, he fundamentally has to invoke that privilege on a document by document or question by question basis. He can't take the sweeping position that any questions whatsoever that are put to him about the matters reflected in the Mueller report are presumptively covered by the privilege. That's simply not something he will do. It's not something available to him under the law. Yeah. And so th there's a lot to, uh, to unpack there because let's talk about executive privilege. We also got a lot of questions from our listeners about executive privilege. Can you just explain the concept and what it what it protects? It protects. It's an umbrella term that, in effect, protects a variety of confidentiality interests. Those do include attorney client privilege. They include presidential communications. They include internal deliberations, law enforcement information, uh, sensitive national security information. But fundamentally, the notion behind executive privilege is that in order for the government to function and for the president to receive the candid, unvarnished advice of advisors, then uh, there needs to be a zone of confidentiality created among around communications of this kind within the executive branch. Uh, otherwise, in effect, that deliberative process is going to be chilled and the communications won't be forthright and the president won't be able to function effectively as the chief executive. So that's what executive privilege is designed to do. It's a privilege like other privileges designed to enforce confidentiality to uphold important purposes. And in this respect, those purposes are the functioning of the executive branch, the ability of the president to call upon uh, the advice of senior staff, um, 
uh, and others in the executive branch. So that is fundamentally executive privilege. Now, it is not absolute. Uh, it is not absolute. There have been claims in the past, for example, that senior staff in the White House could claim an absolute privilege. That has never been well received in the courts. So there's very strong judicial precedent against it. It's a qualified privilege, and it can be overcome uh, by a showing that Congress needs the information to pursue its legislative, uh, its legitimate legislative responsibilities. Exactly. And then also, I, in the criminal context, it can be, I think it can also be overcome by a need for, by a prosecutor to obtain information that otherwise um, they could not get through another source. That's correct. And that is, uh, that is what the Nixon tapes case uh, in 1974 stands for. Uh, President Nixon's, I mean, their was involved there, just to go back to the beginning briefly, there was involved there uh, direct recordings of presidential communications with his most senior advisors. And the president took the position uh, that this material need not be made available to the criminal justice process. At the time, the court was considering the demand for that information on the basis that uh, it was needed in the ongoing trial or the pending trial of former senior members of the executive office of the president, former senior staff of the president. Uh, Everybody understood at the time, of course, that if the tapes wound up being made available, they would directly bear on the president's own personal liability and potential impeachment. In any event, the long and short of it is the court held that in these cases, uh, the need of the criminal justice process for the evidence outweighed any of the concerns that the president might have about the invasion of that sphere of confidentiality. And so one thing I will say, just from my own commentary, is there's a lot of people who dump on uh, Trump's legal team. But one thing I will say is one one important aspect of the strategy here, I think, for them was the reason they made people like McGahn available is to potentially lessen the need for others like Trump potentially uh, to be interviewed. This way they could say, well, you got all the information you needed from Don McGahn. Um, uh, now, as we're in this, in the state, in, in this, the fast forwarding to now, can you explain a, a lot of people, I think myself included, believe that um, this privilege, if there was, to the extent there was any privilege, um, it has been waived by the fact that, the, that McGahn has already said all of these same things to Robert Mueller. Is it on the first order? There's multiple arguments here, but do you do, can you explain to us what the argument would be that the, the privilege has not been waived by 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 Don McGahn already telling another person in, in this case Bob Mueller and his team uh, what the president discussed with him? Yes, I think the defense uh, against that argument that is to say that the privilege has been waived probably rests on a couple of factors. One of them is whether in fact the privilege was waived because there's been a disclosure to a third party. Here you have, excuse me, an intra-branch executive disclosure, excuse me, an intra-executive branch disclosure in which uh, McGahn was speaking to somebody who's presumptively still under the authority of the president within the executive branch. So in other words, it's not the same as if McGahn went and had this conversation, say, with the editorial board of the Washington Post, right? This is a legal proceeding, an investigation within the executive branch. So that's in part the argument. The other piece of it uh, is that the report itself, once it was made public, uh, certainly falls outside any kind of you know claim of privilege. It was disclosed to the whole world. I was going to say you anticipated my next question, Bob. So. <laughs> Right, right. So yeah. just... <laughs> but but the demand that Congress is making is broader than just testimony about the material precisely reflected in the face of the report. The demand is also for uh, all the material that is referenced in the report and all of the underlying investigative materials that supported the conclusions that Mueller reached. And that is a, a very a much more complicated case. Uh, that's a situation in which the executive branch is sure to argue uh, in fact, I think Barr is in fact arguing that those underlying materials and materials referenced in the reports are subject to a review for potential privilege claimed by the attorney general. That's a lot of material, by the way. And that is the reason why Barr has initially made what is called a kind of protective assertion of privilege. It's not a conclusive claim of privilege, but he has told the Congress, I have the right to review, the president has the right to review these materials document by document for potential claim of privilege. 
And so I'm standing on the privilege and asking you to hold your actions to get this material, including potentially citing the attorney general for contempt until I've completed that review. And that is what the argument's about. It's not about having the gang come in and basically you know, affirm that something Mueller has said in the report about his testimony is true. It's about anything he may be asked that goes beyond the four corners of the report that brings in these underlying investigative matters or other materials referenced in the report. Well, that's an important distinction. So let's just say that, that the that Congress, all Congress wanted to do is ask Don McGahn about other matters uh, or Don, ask Don McGahn about um, specifically what's in the report. Your view would be that the administration would have no basis to block that. The issue is that presumably they're going to want to ask him about stuff that either is redacted or it's in the underlying materials that are cited in the report. And they have a valid argument there potentially that there's, that there's executive, that they need to at least review that information for executive privilege before McGahn testifies. That is correct. That if, that if there's, they want to round out what's in the report by asking other matters, some of which by the way, may not be, subject to a valid claim of privilege, but some of them, you know, arguably could be. And that is the basis for at least the attorney general, I think's position or the justice department's position on the McGahn testimony. It is very difficult by the way, to confuse what the president believes he's entitled to with what Bill Barr thinks he's entitled to. <laughs> the president, <laughs> yeah, the president is at one point uh, declared that he's not required to honor any subpoena issued by a chamber of congress that is controlled by the opposing party okay that has no basis in law whatsoever bill barr is not an amateur he's an extremely seasoned very smart i'd even say savvy lawyer he understands the distinctions that we're talking about here and he's going to work with them and he's going to use them in the defense of the institutional presidency as he sees it i happen to think he has an extraordinarily expansive view of presidential prerogatives so i wouldn't agree with them but he's not, shall we say, he's not the, he's not going to present the case in the completely self-defeating way that the president typically does. But that's interesting. So, and this is, I think, important. This is the reason we have people like you on this podcast. I think a lot of people are really perplexed by what's going on and having trouble understanding it. So let me take an opposing view to what you're just saying. Or sure. If I was representing the House of Representatives, and we've had, I think, one <clears throat> two weeks ago we had a congressman on here who was talking about his view on disclosures. What, what I think that the House would say is, well, we want to talk to Don McGahn now. If you want to assert privileges to a specific question, assert it on a question-by-question basis. And similarly with our subpoenas, we received no documents so far to, from any subpoenas thus far in this Congress. We you know, assert the privilege on a document-by-document document basis, but don't. You have no right to assert it over everything in a blanket uh, blanket uh, since, uh, you know, on day one. What would your be your response to that or what would be theirs? Who's, who's response? The administration's response to that? Yeah, what would be the administration's response to that? Well, again, I, it's a little bit difficult for me to filter out some of the rhetorical noise coming out of the administration and some of the Republicans in the Congress. You know, case closed, it's all over, we're not talking about this anymore. I mean, that's all nonsense. The question is whether there is actually a careful legal case that somebody could try to construe to achieve at least some of the administration's defensive objectives. And one of them is on Barr's part, you know, I need to be able to uh, instruct McGahn on the particular matters we believe is subject to privilege on the particular that we don't wish him to testify to. I would like to be able to review each and every document that he's being asked for to determine again, whether we would instruct him to withhold the production of any material on the basis of a claim of privilege. And I'm being, this is a lot of material and I'm asking for the time to do it. Uh, the, one of the contests, I think, between the House and Barr is over schedule. The Democrats believe they're being stonewalled. I think there's every reason to believe, given, as I said, some of the other rhetorical noise in the environment, there's every reason for them to think that's the case. Uh, but uh, the DOJ is going to put forward, of course, a very different face on this argument. They're going to say, no, 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 we're just, we're trying to work within the legal constraints. Now, normally, normally, the two parties have a negotiation. I mean, I say normally, often, and the courts encourage this. 
the executive branch and legislative branch snarl and circle each other and make menacing noises. And then eventually uh, they reach some kind of an accommodation. And by the way, you saw that just now in the accommodation that the Senate reached with Donald Trump Jr.'s lawyers uh, for limited testimony after Trump had originally said, Trump Jr. had originally said, and Republicans had said on his behalf in the Senate, I'm not coming back again. I'm not making a second appearance. And they cut a deal. And that's usually uh, what will happen, uh, assuming that each side persists and they have a fight to the finish. It, oftentimes it will end in a negotiation, and it did in the Trump Jr. case. Will that happen in the House? Well, it's a different story, of course, because the House is controlled by Democrats. The tone and thrust of the argument is quite different. The Democrats are extraordinarily frustrated uh, with the administration's behavior on these issues and what they believe, again, is the stonewalling. And so, you know, unlike the Senate, which is controlled by Republicans, it is not as easy to see how an accommodation will be reached on some of these issues between the House Democrats, the House majority, and the Department of Justice. But that is often what courts will literally explicitly say, as you know, listen, don't come bother us with this. If it ever does come to litigation, go figure it out yourselves. The two branches should be able to work out a deal. Well, I think that that really is something that is very helpful for all of us here, because a lot of our listeners have the perspective that, hey, there's a subpoena. We should just have the House send the sergeant in arms to go arrest Bill Barr or something like that, which I think, you know, we discussed last week. But you and I both know that's unrealistic. Um, and they don't. I, I, <laughs> it yeah. is. So, the, the you know, I had but I did have listeners asking again about it this week. Um, what would I what I want to provide some context? Why is it that the courts are reluctant to get in the middle of the other two branches? And how unusual is this? The, the fight that we've seen here compared to the fights that you saw when you were in the Obama White House? Well, let me say a number of things here. Let me just make a number of points here. I don't mean to get off the point. I just want to start with one thing about, you know, the potential of criminal exposure for the attorney general. One of the effects of a claim of privilege and one of the functions of a so-called protective claim of privilege, meaning there's no conclusive claim of privilege, but the attorney general is saying he's asserting it at least conditionally so he has the time to review the evidence, right, and make a determination of which of the pieces of evidence would be subjected to a claim of privilege. One of the functions of that is to stay the Congress's hand in pursuing criminal contempt proceedings because criminal contempt proceedings, criminal contempt proceedings cannot be uh, pursued when there is a uh, unresolved presidential claim of privilege outstanding. So that's part of the reason, or part of the functions of the so-called protective claim of privilege that has been asserted at this time. So that's one thing I just wanted to mention. Interesting. Secondly, my experience, um, I had a, a strange experience because the Republicans uh, regained control of the House in 2010 and immediately began making noises about aggressive investigations and oversight. Former Chairman Darrell Ice of the Oversight Committee out of California said, you know, set some extraordinary number. He's going to have 62 different investigations or hearings conducted over a very compressed period of time. But it never, it was so scattershot. It never really materialized as a major assault. First of all, I'm pleased to say, you know, permit me this little bit of editorializing, <laughs> There wasn't a whole lot of them to pick on. There was not much for them to pick at because the Obama administration just didn't have the vulnerability on these issues that the Trump administration did. Um, so they, there was an awful lot of uh, effort on the part of the Republicans to sort of, if you will, weave controversy out of very thin or non-existent material. Uh, and so there really wasn't much for them to investigate, no matter how much table pounding they did. But for whatever other reason, and partly for that reason, they spread their claims across a whole sort of range of this is this is and that, whereas what we have here is a real, live, serious, concrete uh, set of questions about the administration's behavior, about candidate Trump's behavior that have been the subject of a sustained <clears throat> uh, special counsel investigation spanning 18 months. So it's a very focused set of issues here, and in particular right now, uh, the House is bearing down uh, on the obstruction of justice material in the uh, Mueller report. So that, that's very, very different. 
than this kind of diffuse set of allegations that the Republicans were continuously coming up with to sort of support their oversight claims against the Obama administration. My experience in that sense is very different mm-hmm. uh, than, say, you know, the current White House counsel's experience, which must be sort of a daily nightmare. <laughs> um, one thing that I'm interested in is the um, the uh, Republicans and a lot their allies have been likening what Barr has been doing to Eric Holder's handling of the um, Fast and Furious investigation. I'm curious if you believe that there's a difference in um, how the the Obama administration handled that versus how Barr has handled this particular um, situation. Well, in part, I would say we'll see what happens here. You know, the, the administration, <clears throat> as I said, was under assault from a lot of different directions during the Obama years, but the Republicans never had their hands on anything, especially, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be very understated about this, so I don't sound so too partisan here. And I don't mean to sound too partisan, but the Republicans had to constantly test for this or that to try to create the impression of wrongdoing where none existed. But having said all of that, um, to try to judge the administration's handling of the fast and furious matter against what's going on currently. Now we have to sort of see how things turn out here. Uh, As you know, there was litigation. There was an assertion of privilege in the Holder matter, and there was a resolution in the court. Uh, The court resolution was a little muddied by the court's determination that for all practical purposes, uh, the Obama administration had conceded that certain material, you know, was appropriate for congressional, appropriate for congressional review and so it didn't really rule terribly squarely on the on the privilege claims because in, in their judgment they've been sort of sort of superseded um as i recall i wasn't there at the time by the way but this is my recollection uh, those privilege claims have been kind of overcome by the administration having sort of acknowledged that there were some legitimate oversight um, interests of the congress that needed to be met um it's a much sort of lower intensity kind of conflict with considerably fewer ramifications than the current controversy. And as I said, in order to compare the two, you would have to see how this current controversy will ultimately play out and be resolved. Mm -hmm. You know, will there be an accommodation? Will there be litigation? I will be, I I will have to say, I'm going to be a little surprised. I could be wrong. I'm a little surprised if Don McGahn testifies on May 21st, but there's still some time to go before, we'll know uh, whether, you know, how that particular issue is going to get resolved. There is unquestionably a real high degree of sensitivity you can imagine within the Trump administration, even if you set aside the president's own, you know, chronic misunderstandings of the process about what it would mean for the White House counsel to uh, testify at length about, you know, the president's behavior around these obstruction issues, given that, you know, he was White House counsel at the time, et cetera. Um, So, We'll see what happens. They may they may dig their heels in. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because Don McGahn, through his lawyer, essentially said, "I'm facing competing, uh, dueling uh, positions by Congress and the presidency, so I'm going to leave the status quo. I'm going to have the status quo stay in place." I thought it was an interesting letter, an interesting position for him to take. And I, let's just to take it in the best possible light for a moment. Let's just assume that Don McGahn is looking at this. You talked about potential ethical obligations that Don McGahn has. Can you kind of explain to us what obligations Don McGahn has to his former client, the Office of the Presidency, uh, or you know, to the government? He would be sensitive. I think I mentioned earlier, I think he would be sensitive uh, to the question of whether or not there were legitimate claims of privilege with respect to particular areas of inquiry, particular documents and the like. He saw himself, I think it's clear from press reports, he saw himself as an institutional lawyer. So these claims of privilege bear on legitimate institutional prerogatives, or at least in theory they could. Obviously, if they're asserted in bad faith and they have no legal basis, that wouldn't be the case. But if he concludes otherwise and he thinks they have merit, I think that's going to affect him. And also, um, he would, uh, on matters that he believed were within the attorney-client privilege as it applies to him as a government lawyer representing the president, right? Not the president in his personal capacity on matters of personal legal exposure, but with the president, I think he would want to be careful here, or he might think he'd want to be careful here. I, I don't know what he really thinks. That's what they haven't discussed it with him because it has implications for the White House counsel's role 
in the future. Again, that comes back to the institutional implications of how he manages the attorney-client privilege in this context. So for, excuse me, for both those reasons, these institutional reasons and reasons related to the confidential relationship between the White House counsel and the president as a client, but as a client meaning the current occupant of the presidency represented in an institutional capacity, um, he will be sensitive to those issues, I think. And he will rely on, you know, his lawyer's advice, but he will, to come back to this, um, he will make that final decision. I mean, he, the president can't stop him at the door. They're, they're, he can't be restrained from walking into the building. The president can complain, his lawyers can complain, Justice Department can complain, but ultimately McGahn is going to make that decision. He's going to do, as you say, the balancing uh, that he has said that he would do. If, if you don't mind, I also want to come back to a question you asked that I didn't answer before. I just want to make sure, sure. we're complete about it. You asked the question of, you know, why do the courts want to do this? The courts, why do the courts want accommodations? Why are they looking for negotiation? That sort of right. resolution. The answer is that, you know, these are very angry political battles. There are all sorts of institutional, policy, constitutional, political struggles that are all taking place and wind up merging often one into the other in the responses of the two sides. And the courts, to some degree, think it ought to be committed, if you will, back to the political process to have these two institutions representing their respective, and in this case, competing interests, just find a way because the courts may not feel they're really competent to do so, that they don't have the capability to really preside over this kind of a fight and find the, the, the best possible balance of the competing interests that's really up to the parties, if you will, to, in that political market to arrive at the balance that, that works best for everybody or is at least the best that could be hoped for in the circumstances. It's, a, in that sense, a recognition of institutional limitations on the part of the courts. Yeah, I think that courts want, I would also say, Bob, and you can tell me if you disagree, courts want to remain separate and apart from politics and try to avoid wading into political disputes unless it's absolutely necessary to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, they look at this, what what looks sometimes like a complete cafeteria fight here, where on the one hand, you know, the Department of Justice is sending these letters and, you know, citing legal considerations Mitch McConnell's on the floor of the Senate saying case is closed. Lindsey Graham saying it's all absurd. We're done with this. The president says, I'll never honor a subpoena from another, another subpoena from the House of Representatives as long as the Democrats control it. And the court's natural response is, hey, you folks figure it out. This puts us in an impossible position. Well, it's important for people to understand, for our listeners to understand, I, something I've written about in a column in Politico is this is the reason why the House Judiciary Committee is being very careful and deliberate in, in taking this very slowly, giving every opportunity possible for the White House to make accommodations so that this way they set themselves up for a potential litigation because they need to show a court why it's necessary for the court to reach a decision. And I think that's not an easy thing to do in this context. That's absolutely right. Both sides have to keep an eye on whether they are exhibiting enough responsible behavior, if you will, showing enough openness to the arguments on the other side, looking enough toward a potential compromise, and it, it all breaks down and they wind up in court. They're not the ones, that is to say, whichever party it is that worries about this, that are seen to have just simply been extreme, either in their demands or in their resistance. So one thing to go back to McGahn, you know, we talked you talked about how he's ultimately going to have to make the decision in the end. You could imagine Don McGahn taking a different position than he took. You could I could imagine Don McGahn saying the House has subpoenaed me. I'm going to comply with the House's subpoena unless you get a court unless the White House gets a court order that tells me otherwise. They have to go to court and litigate this issue, essentially. I mean, couldn't he take that? Couldn't he have taken that position? He could, I suppose. I think for a variety of reasons, given also the position of the Republican Party has taken, uh, the, the very sort of aggressive political position the Republican Party has taken, that Don McGahn, as a well-known senior Republican in the community, is going to be careful about appearing. I mean, this is my guess, and I'm not saying it's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm just sort of right. trying to think about Explain what it. might motivate him in these circumstances. Right. That he might not want to be seen as forcing the administration unnecessarily into too difficult a position 
you know, seeming to side initially or to be leaning more toward House cooperation than sort of squarely situating himself in the middle. I think where he wants to be right now, what my sense of it is from everything I've seen, is he wants to be right in the middle, the way his lawyers described it. Got obligations as a government lawyer to the public and therefore to the Congress in this setting. He has other obligations as a former White House counsel in the matter of the privilege and attorney client confidentiality considerations. And so he sort of waits to see whether there's a chance that if you will, he's saved by some sort of an agreement or accommodation, but he's not driving the result by either by forcing one side or the other or tilting one direction more than in the other. As a senior Republican lawyer, I, and, and with, with, by the way, very strong relationships on Capitol Hill, that's always been his base. That's always where he's had the strong support. He has an excellent relationship with Mr. McConnell. I, I think he's going to be very careful about that. I, I agree. I, and that's exactly what I was trying to get to, because I had the same view. I expressed it in, in a column and also on Twitter is Don McGahn is first and foremost a Republican operative. I'm sorry. He's been a Republican lawyer for many years. He's very well known. He's had a lot of success in this administration that has been praised by congressional Republicans. Uh, you know, in many ways, the judicial nominations by President Trump have been a, a victory for him. And he's somebody who has praised the administration even after leaving it. So, you know, to me, to understand McGahn's position here, you have to really understand who McGahn is as a person and not merely assume that it's it's not dictated necessarily by his, the ethical concerns he has or his former position. It's, it's also, I think, who he is as a human being and his reputation and so on. I think that's right. And what comes to mind um, uh, when you say that is the case-by-case choices that he's made in either living with the intolerable conditions under which he worked under Donald Trump or in other cases, putting up resistance. So, for example, uh, it's been very interesting recently to read about the ongoing controversy, I guess, in the president's mind, that he wanted McGahn uh, to make a clear-cut statement publicly, outside of any interview he gave to the Mueller report, that he never believed that the president had committed obstruction of justice. And McGahn wouldn't do that. He wouldn't go outside the process, if you will, and issue a press release saying, oh, by the way, just to clarify things, I think the boss is innocent of obstruction of justice. He refused to do that. And yet at the same time, um, the impression that you have is that in his testimony to Mueller, he didn't indicate that he thought the president in his various directions to him that could be construed to be obstructive had criminal intent. So he, mm-hmm. he, he, cut, a, he cut a fine line there. Now, look, would I have made all the decisions that Don McGahn made in this situation? Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that I would have. So I don't want to lionize Don, and Don would be shocked if I did. I think Don heard <laughs> me, you know, singing his praises here, he'd probably fall off his chair. But <laughs> having said that, I think it's clear that he had a serious, he tried to do exactly what you suggest, which is to negotiate a very, very tortuous path Trump's impulsivity. Don McGahn's ethical obligations, congressional expectation. And I suspect one of the reasons that he stayed as long as he did under these conditions was because while he was representing, uh, he was the White House counsel, there was probably significant pressure on him to stay in place and finish the job from congressional Republicans. And so mm-hmm. one answer to the question is, why did Don McGahn put up with this? Well, he had a job to do that Mitch McConnell and others expected him to do, and he did that job. In, as I said earlier, judicial nominations, deregulation, and other areas of policy. And he just had to kind of do the best he could with this president that, you know, was down the hall or rather downstairs and, you know, to the left. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, what I, yeah, my view of Don McGahn is a man who acted. He didn't appear to act unethically, he acted ethically, and, you know, was honest with Robert Mueller, as far as we could tell, in terms of his. As for terms of what he he told Mueller and his team, but nonetheless, as somebody who was obviously a loyal Republican and was trying to carry forward the, the Trump administration's um, positions and save Trump from himself at times. And and by the way, I should add, no fool, because let's also recall that when Don McGahn is testifying before Bob Mueller, you know there is 
a natural concern he would have with his own exposure if he's not truthful. I mean, he's not going mm-hmm. to, when he would, you know, he could have done it a couple of different ways, but certainly one thing he wasn't, I, I, I believe, going to do in, a, in an ultimately self-protective sense was to go ahead and testify for 30 hours and then wind up with a perjury prosecution. <laughs> There's no question. Yeah, I mean, Don McGahn uh, is without a doubt the smartest lawyer, as far as I could tell, that was surrounding the president of the United States in this scenario. Um, the irony yes. is that uh, Trump was not always following his advice. Um, yes. Just to switch gears briefly, I, 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 I appreciate the amount of time you've already given us, but to switch sure, gears no briefly, problem. we talked about Don Jr. a little bit a moment ago. And obviously one of the things that a lot of people were looking for in the Mueller report was any potential criminal exposure by Donald Trump Jr. Mm-hmm. And one one uh, considerable amount of speculation was put on the on this idea that Trump Jr. was trying to get dirt from the Russians in the Trump Tower meeting and that perhaps this would be a, a violation of the campaign finance laws. I, if, for listeners who don't know this, uh, you are obviously you're one of the sort of nation's experts on camp on federal campaign finance laws. So I was hoping you could help us understand uh, Robert Mueller's view of the campaign finance law as it as it applied to Donald Trump Jr. and and other and others in the uh, in the uh, Mueller report. I had difficulty understanding the conclusion uh, that the Mueller team reached on this point. They were very hesitant here for reasons that I didn't think were very clearly explained. Uh, They were very hesitant uh, to credit what I thought was significant evidence of a campaign finance violation soliciting support from a foreign national, uh, significant support that would have been construed to be the solicitation of an in-kind contribution in the form of opposition research. The statute is robust on this point. It's been amended by Congress several times as recently as 2002 to be even tighter. There's no question that opposition research, if you solicit it, uh, does have value. Uh, the value it has to have to support a criminal prosecution isn't all that high. There are other expenses that the Russians incurred to come to New York to negotiate around the support they wanted to offer and that the campaign made clear it would accept. And so there's money being spent even there that I think triggers the campaign finance law prohibitions. Mueller seemed troubled by some of the uncertainties what did they expect to get? They never really got it. They had some constitutional concerns that are not clear. It's possible that they didn't want to discuss some of this because from the redactions, it's apparent there's another campaign finance case potentially pending. So there may have been some decisions not to um, expose all of their reasoning about the limits of their legal authority because they may feel that within the limits of that authority, they can pursue another case. But I thought that uh, that was um mysteriously incomplete or cursory treatment of the issue in that report. So one one thing I gleaned from my reading is it seemed to be one thing that may have been driving this was that there is a willfulness requirement uh, to charge a criminal uh, campaign finance violation, which essentially means that the person has to know that they were violating a known legal duty of some mm-hmm. kind. In It seemed to me that what saved Donald Trump Jr. was – you know, his lack of knowledge of campaign finance law, or at least the the Mueller team's view that they would have difficulty proving that he had a, a, any knowledge of campaign finance law. What's your thought on, on that? I thought that um, that might, might arguably uh, have been a consideration in Donald Trump Jr.'s case, but other senior staff knew what the purpose of the meeting was and attended it. Paul Manafort has been involved with the campaign manager at the time in five decades of presidential politics. He was a senior advisor in 1996 to the Republican presidential campaign. And in 1996, the Republicans made a major issue resulting in hearings in 1997 about alleged foreign national illegal interference in the 1996 reelection campaign of Bill Clinton. So he had to be aware of it. Um, I, I think there's some evidence that they made a point of not consulting their general counsel. Who was their general counsel? The campaign general counsel was Don McGahn. He was an expert in campaign finance laws. He was formerly chairman of the Federal Election Commission. And last but not least, I'd say that if Mueller had not thought he was prepared to bring the case, the campaign criminal case, against any of the individuals for whatever reason, he could have brought that case against the campaign as an entity. He could have brought it against the Trump campaign, in my view, 
And he declined to do that because there is entity liability in these circumstances as well. You know, it's interesting. So I'll say from my perspective as a prosecutor, a former federal prosecutor, you know, the campaign finance laws are there's not often criminal prosecution. So it's a sort of charge that if, for example, let's just say Paul Manafort was the only possible person to charge. I could see as a prosecutor not bringing the campaign finance charge because you have plenty of other things to to charge Paul Manafort, whether you get sent him to prison for X number of years, whatever. Um, Although if you want you were interested in developing that that case law against someone like. Uh, for example, Jared Kushner or Don Jr., mm-hmm. you could litigate mm-hmm. the case against Banford, establish, get the case law all lined up for you. In other words, have a judge make a bunch of rulings on the legal issues uh, and then use that potentially uh, in a subsequent prosecution of somebody else. You know, as to the entity, I think that's an interesting uh, question. You know, the Justice Department is, has various uh uh, guidelines, including this one that Sally Yates, the the former de- uh, deputy attorney general, append about prosecuting individuals and not entities. And this is an interesting situation in which the entity may potentially have been more, more culpable than some of the individuals. Um, yeah. yeah. Very interesting uh, questions that I have to say, um, you know, in many ways, I think have not been fully explored, partly because the Mueller report was so large and expansive. There's so much there that it's hard, I think, for everyone to get into all the details. It's almost like too much news at once. And then, at the, and then, in addition, it was like released right before Passover and and Easter and you know everything else. Right. So, um, right, absolutely. Well, Bob, Bob, I think I thank you so much for taking the time out. Oh, it's so good. It's a pleasure. I absolutely, I learned a lot from you. Thank you once again for taking the time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 